Greetings and welcome to a special edition of A Blog to Watch Weekly. In this show, myself and David got to travel to Geneva where we met up with Jean-Christophe Sabatier, the Chief Product Officer of Uli Snardin, to talk about the incredible freak family of watches, a full retrospective in the next 45 minutes of all things freak. I got out of this some real nuggets about everything that this brand has done and has achieved. Hopefully you will identify those nuggets too. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of tea and uh, yeah, enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to a special episode of A Blog to Watch Weekly. This episode we are doing a retrospective on one of myself and David's favourite watch designs. Uh, David, tell us where we are and who we're speaking to. So we're speaking to Jean-Christophe Sabatier of Ulysse Nardin, the technical and product development guy at the company and responsible for a lot of the cutting edge stuff that we've been seeing from the brand. And we are at the brand's boutique in Geneva during Geneva Watch Days. And we, you know, we were just discussing what is, what we, as we were preparing for this recording, what should be the subject or the topic. And I thought to myself, it kind of has to be the freak. I would love to talk about the freak because it's just such an important piece of watch design and it has a place in modern watchmaking history. It, it technically is the way that I look at it and I think a lot of the others uh, look at it is that this was the watch that really broke the, the the rules you know before the freak the watches used to be like round and flat and simple and the crown on the side and two hands and whatever and the freak was called a freak because it's a freakish watch you look at it now and even today the original freak of 2001 looks incredible like out of this world imagine like to try and go back to 2001 watch design you know just a bunch of dive watches and boring dress watches 35 millimeter in gold and then this thing comes out right so right crystal i i i, I perfectly agree and do we know where the word freak came from yes for of the watch? course we know go on then <laughs> do you share yes <laughs> as david mentioned the freak is a an incredible concept that is marking the beginning of a new era for the entire watchmaking industry. I mean, in my opinion, the freak is really an iconic timepiece. I would call it the first hyperwatch. And the guy who was behind this uh, incredible launch is, of course, Mr. Rolf Schneider, who has uh, decided to uh, join all the forces inside the company, and we will come on that to find a lot of know-hows outside the company in order to reinvent the way to uh, conceive uh, watchmaking. He wanted something that nobody could imitate. And, and by the way, there is no imitation of the freak. It has never been possible because it's too complicated. And this is very particular and shows that this timepiece is just uh, unique and uh, exceptional. And I'm very happy to dig a little bit into this product and explain why and how uh, the Freak is so particular. So do we know when it was first conceived as an idea? Yes, yes. So I did not answer precisely, but the name first. Yeah. Freak has been chosen by Rolf Schneider himself, uh, who bought Ulysse Nardin uh, at the, during the 90s and relaunched. Uh, the brand after the quartz crisis period and re-established that brand beyond the few and rare uh, exclusive manufacture. Ulysse Nardin has been a manufacturer uh, producing its own calibers and escapement at the end of the 19th century. He has relaunched the brand and the freak 
for him was the way he, wa he was considering this project as a signature project, showing, okay, we are coming back. Ulysse Nardin is coming back. We have uh, conquered all the oceans during one century from the middle of the 90s to the middle of the 20th century. We are now going to reinvent the watchmaking of the 21th century through the freak. So the story is, is the story of, a, of a, it's a, it has been a long process. It has been a teamwork. It started in uh, 1999 with a genius developer, a woman called Carole Forestier. She attended a Grand Prix a competition uh, that was uh, uh, supported by Breguet. The greatest watchmakers were participating. Loiseau, Daniels, Journe, everybody was there. She was the only woman. She was very young and she won. And she won with a particular concept. It was an orbital caliber with a barrel around the, the caliber in order to save space. And it was an orbital uh, caliber because it's, it's, I mean, she was, for what I understand about her legacy, because she has a, a very strong legacy in, a, in the watchmaking industry, she has worked for several brands. She's really keen, specialized in orbital calibers. It's really her, her motto. So what is, what is an orbital caliber? It's, it's, it's a, for example, a carousel. Mm -hmm. So it is a, a caliber that is moving on itself, mm -hmm. if I may say. So the idea is not to uh, consider that, I would define it like that, it's not to consider that the caliber is here to move some hands, it's to, to consider that the caliber is, is near to display something spectacular and to show mechanics. So she won and uh, then she has been hired by Ulysse Nardin, by Rolf Schneider, uh, our CEO and owner at that time, and Pierre Gigax was in, in, in uh, in the head uh, of the um, uh, R&D department. And she spent several years working on this project inside Ulysse Nardin. It has taken several years because it was, uh, I mean, we have faced difficulties. I, for what I understood, the main difficulties were related to the power reserve, for example, uh, because of the, the, the fact that the barrel was outside the caliber. But some other uh, great watchmakers have also contributed to this concept, and particularly the, the genius, the master, Mr. Ludwig Oechlin. He was uh, really the, let's say, the, the partner of Rolf. Uh, with Rolf, he has launched many astronomical pieces, uh, high complications at Ulysse Nardin. He started also to work on this concept in order to try uh, with the, de the design and development team to make it happen. Uh, he, and he has he brought his own touch, and uh, his idea has been to say, okay, it is an orbital caliber, but we could even try to do more. We could try to use the movement to display time. So the idea here is not only to have something that is rotating mechanically, uh, but it is also to say, okay, we are going to remove hands, and we are going, the movement is going to indicate the notion of time. He has also decided with the development team to modify a little bit the construction. And uh, uh, they've put the barrel on the, on the back of the caliber and they came to uh, an impressive construction, which is quite different from any other timepiece, a kind of UFO, uh, a piece that you set from the bezel. And when you turn the bezel, in fact, you carry all the entire mechanism. Right. And below the mechanism, you have the barrel. And as here you have a lot of space, 
you can reach seven day power reserve with a manual winding. With a huge barrel so the, and a huge mainspring. So the way people should imagine the first, and it's true for every freak ever, is that there's no crown. So yes. you look at it and maybe your eyes don't even recognize the fact that it doesn't have a crown on either side of the case. And after a while, you guys introduce a little latch that you had to like flip up in between the lower lugs and that would unlock the bezel. And as you're turning yes. the bezel, the listeners should imagine like this is like a smooth but, but, but hard motion that you have to like make because there's like a lot of friction in the movement. So you feel like you're turning this huge machine. And the way the first freak and every freak uh, since would indicate the time is that it had a it had a long bridge over what used to be the dial, and that bridge had basically the going train and all the different wheels, exactly. and even the balance wheel at the end. So you had almost every component of a movement put onto a bridge, you know, except for the mainspring, and this whole thing would make a rotation around the face of the watch in an hour, and you had a little arrow on a different disc that would indicate the hours. And the way you would wind the mainspring is that you had to flip the watch around and you had to rotate the case back, right? Or part of the case back. And I believe that even the mainspring was exposed. So you could see, like, try and imagine a mainspring the size of a case back. It's, it's like three times the size of a regular mainspring and that gave all the torque because usually a mini hand and an hour hand are just light things, but here you're turning the whole thing around itself and that's what makes it orbital. Exactly. The first mainspring and, and most of them that we use uh, inside the free collection, they have two meters length. And at mm -hmm. the beginning, it, it has been very difficult to find a supplier that will be able to, to produce something like that. Because I mean, uh, the barrel is, is, is really uh, powerful uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's due to this absolutely uh, unique way to conceive the piece. And if you want to, you, you have to do tabula rasa uh, in your head when you are a watchmaker, if you want to reach mm. uh, this level of creativity. You need a clean sheet. You cannot exactly. go and say like, "Where, hey guys, we I just saw that uh, base movement with an automatic winding. Let's make a, let's turn that into a freak." No, that's not how it works. Exactly. It starts with a genius idea of uh, like that of uh, Miss Carol Forestier Casapi, who had this idea, and then a number of other geniuses of the watch industry yes, yes. to come together and turn it into something that actually works and I feel like we have to appreciate the fact that this is not just an object that ticks and talks and looks cool it has to be accurate and has to be reliable in the way that it tells the time exactly and in addition to all of what you said hmm. the fact that the caliber itself is unique the concept philosophically is unique hmm. the design the name which is just incredible I mean <laughs> it's a crazy name uh, uh, it is also about materials and escapements. Why is that? We had many escapements inside the free collections that were revolutionary, but let's speak two minutes about the first one. For example, the dual direct, the idea here, and it's uh, again team uh, work between uh, different people, particularly Mr. Ludwig Oshlin and Mr. Pierre Gigax. They decided to redefine entirely the concept of a modern timepiece, including for the escapement. At that time, if you consider the size of Ulysse Nardin, very exclusive, very small, a startup trying to launch a revolutionary escapement, it's quite a little bit bold, if I may say, and it needs a lot of courage. Their idea has been, we want to try new materials for the escapement because we believe that we could improve the level of durability and precision through modern materials. They have studied 
different type of materials and they decided to go for the silicium. This was before anyone had silicium. So today it's quite ubiquitous because we see big large groups you know invest heavily into this material but in the late 1990s and early 2000s this was a, a totally new avenue of development. I agree. And, and I, very often, you know, the word of pioneer or uh, innovator uh, is used for very small improvements. Here we are speaking about a technological rupture that has been brought by a small startup with few crazy personalities. And they have chosen the silicium. They had the courage to patent it, to fight against very big brands in order to push their innovation to the commercialization, and I can tell you that it has been kind of a, a, a big story. <laughs> we can talk about that a little bit. I mean, yes, it has been a competition. You had, at that time, four competitors. Rolex, Patek, Swatch, Swatch, and you guys. And Ulysse Nardin. Yeah. So can you imagine, I mean, compare the size of Ulysse Nardin, a very exclusive manufacturer, to do, those big guys. Hmm. We arrived first. We have launched the first timepiece in, in silicium in this industry with a silicium escapement in 2001 with the launch of the first Freak. And we will come back on that also maybe in the, in the coming minutes because we have not only done that, we have continued this pioneering of the silicium technologies. For example, we have been the first brand to launch a silicium airspring in 2007, which is another significant breakthrough. And this has been uh, made possible, in fact, by the door that has been opened also by the, the freak, because the freak, it's, it's, it's also, I mean, it's a promise, it's a concept in itself. And uh, everybody at the manufacture has had to enter into this way of thinking, highly disruptive. Uh, it's, it's, it's a revolution. In no fact. limits. I mean, uh, yes. And this is why I believe that the product is just incredible. You will find six generations inside the Freak collection. Uh, so in, what, 21 years, I would say a very rich history in terms of product launches. Each new Freak is carrying all the DNA of the original piece, but most of the time is also bringing a new innovation into the market. And so just to go back to something you touched on there before we advanced through a number of those uh, progressions, to what extent was the introduction to Freak greeted by the rest of the watch world as that will never work versus the watch world going, blast, I wish we'd thought of that first. Was there a generic feel of, yeah, ignore them, they're, they're not big enough, they're too small, they'll, they'll never make this happen. What was the zeitgeist amongst the rest of the watch world at the time? Well, funny enough, I discussed yesterday with some journalists who attended the first launch of the Freak. Right. It was at the Basel Fair in 2001, and I met three of them, and they all remember that day. You know what I mean? Very precisely. There are some days that people, they remember because they believe that these are important moments. It was at Basel Fair, and Rolf Schindler himself and Ludwig Oschlin, I mean the master, I mean one of the best watchmakers of this industry, they presented themselves the concept wearing 
big masks, <laughs> freaky masks, masks, <laughs> and uh, you know they entered the show uh, near the show, a place you know with uh, instruments playing, you know uh, drums and things like that, just to attract the attention of the people, and they made a happening, you know, very simple and authentic, uh, by themselves, you know, a show. They call it the freak show. Mm -hmm. They had a very small presentation. Welcome to the freak show. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was a little bit like a, a circus. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And uh, everybody was first curious, attracted by that, that show. Mm -hmm. And then I think the people were, they, they thought that it's just unbelievable. And this show created a lot of buzz. What people need to imagine is that all the crazy watches that you see today, like the Jacob Enco Astronomias and all these amazing, like the, or the Richard Mills or whatever, it's, it was unheard of to turn away from that regular and much loved concept of like, these are the hands and they tell the time and then the watch is flat and you don't see, like to even to just show a wheel or a bridge or to have like an open heart dial, not even an open heart dial existed. Like there was skeletonized movements every once in a while here and there. But you know, those are very rare and sometimes like conversions from like pocket watch movements or whatever. So so for a big brand to, to go to Baselwood and be like, hey guys, this is what we're doing and it's a freaking freak show was, was, was groundbreaking in so many ways. Exactly. And I can tell you that very few people were ironic seeing that show and uh, listening that buzz even the big brands and, uh, and the competition for patenting all this innovation has been uh, fierce mm. because it was, uh, it was a race against time. And today we are probably the brand in the industry who is, let's say, uh, the, the number one user in terms of integration of the different uh, silicium technologies. We produce in our watches, we have 90% of our watches equipped with silicium escapements. Uh, basically, 90% of the timepieces we produce are manufacturer movement. Mm -hmm. All of them are equipped with these escapements. But we also use silicium air springs. We have some sil silicium oscillators. We also play with silicium for dial marketries, for example. We have patented uh, technology which is incredible, which is called the diamond seal, which is a, a diamond coating treatment on top of the silicium in order to reinforce the silicium itself. Why was that necessary? Because it was fragile or...? Yes, I think it's a very good point. Of course, as any material, the silicium has some advantages and drawbacks. Mm -hmm. So if you take first the advantages, you will see that the list is quite long. <laughs> it's light. It's amagnetic, it's very durable. It is a monocrystalline material, so it's by definition perfect. Uh, you have no waste, if I may say. You have no asperities with the material. So you can create very complex geometries mm -hmm. because it is a, a high-tech uh, way to produce it. It's grown, right? No, to be more precise, it's a little bit the reverse than the growing process. Growing process is coming from the liga, with the silicium, you, you dig, you cut around. So in fact, you take, you know, um, the silicium is like a, it's a big carrot. You cut some uh, slices, they are called wafer. Then you put some uh, photo text on the, so it's a kind of mask, photo lito uh, on, on the on Photolithography, the yes. Yep. And then you have a plasma treatment. And with the plasma treatment, you are going to cut around each piece. So it's very precise. And you can do with the silicium technologies, different uh, layers in one unique piece. So it can be complex and 2D, but also complex in three dimension. So 
you have a lot of advantages like that. There is one drawback, is that the material is uh, fragile. Fragile when it's not under tension. Once it is assembled, it, it's, it's good. But uh, you can break easily the component at the desk level for the watchmaker if you do not use it in an appropriate manner. And the, the silicium coating is improving the level of, say, uh, uh, resistance of the material when you touch it, when, you, when, it, when it falls. But also, it, it has good, it is even improving the durability of the produ product, which is already very long. Because it's lubrication free, right? So yes, I did not mention that element, which is in my opinion, the most important advantage is that in addition to all what I said, uh, it is lubrication free. So of course, this allows us uh, to, for example, I will take an example very simple. We present our innovation through the free collection and particularly the silicium, but then we use some of them for the rest of the manufacturer calibers that we sell. Our flagship caliber is the 118. It's uh, equipping the diver or the marine collection. It's, the, let's say, the volume caliber. We are using silicium escapements and we are using the diamond seal on this movement. And we offer a 10 years warranty on silicium components, for example. And this is because it is lubrification free. So it is really a material that is considered now as a must. You have many brands that are using silicium escapements today. Or hairspring. Few, because it's, this technology is still patented and reserved. Today, if you want to, uh, to buy a watch with uh, silicium hairspring, you will have to buy a, a Patek, a Rolex, a Breguet, or Ulysnarda. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. And uh, again, it's interesting just circling back to the freak that you said that it was a race to the top when you, you guys and all the competitors were developing the silicium technology in the early 2000s, but they had to develop the silicium technology while Ulysnarda developed a freak around it. Exactly. So it was not just uh, how do we make this uh, escapement out of this crazy high-tech, literally high-tech material, but also how do we construct an inside-out movement that rotates around itself and displays the time in a way that's never been done before so i'm sitting in front of like a four page document listing i don't know let's see well it's like 15 four. whoa it's the family tree okay that so that's <laughs> so that's 8 12 16 like 20 this is like 30 something different freak iterations yes. over the yes. course of of 21 years so okay so the whole thing started with the freak one as it's called but what were the, like the major steps over the last 20 years in the history of the freak that are like standout standout moments for you well today so you have mentioned uh, this family tree that you have in front of you with all the models that have been introduced by Ulysse Nardin you have a very selective club of freak owners and just to give you an idea you have 5,000 members <laughs> into this club so you have in 21 years today 21 years uh -huh. uh, as of today 5,000 units has been produced by the manufacturer. That's the annual production of Richard Mille, just, just to exactly. give guys a sub. Yeah. sub I, and I think it's important to, yeah, to, oh, yeah. to underline that because this product is still very exclusive and esoteric, if I may say. In the meantime, as you mentioned, you have different variations. So we can maybe select a few of them just to, to introduce, let's say. So the first one, 2001, first silicium escapement. It was uh, gold. Uh, mm -hmm. and platinum at the yeah. beginning. 2007, for example, you have some different variations of the freak. Yeah. Introduction of the diamond coating silicium, yeah. introduction of the uh, silicium airspring. The Innovision. In the Innovision one. And then 
in some variations of the freak collection, like for example the blue phantom. Then we have enlarged a little bit the offer inside the collection with different types of calibers. You have some flying carousel, like freak cruiser. You have some centered 60-minute tourbillons, like freak lab. And you have also some flying carousel carrying a flying tourbillon cage, like <laughs> the freak phantom. Because why not? Because why not? Exactly. <laughs> oh <laughs> It's my exactly God. the principle yes. of, the, of the freak yeah, why uh, not? That's, that's, a, that's a very good point, actually, even if I didn't make it myself, which is that, yeah, it is just a case of why not? Uh, for most brands, why not? Because we can't. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, this is, yeah, this is why not? Because actually we can. I do think it's fascinating. I'm absolutely stunned by the, the numbers that you're talking about, 5,000 over 21 years. And it does make me think about just where the freak uh, sits in the world of this kind of high horology mm -hmm. and high tech in relation to, as David mentioned, the likes of Richard Mille and others, I suppose we've seen others this morning, the likes of Moser, MBNF, uh, Grubo Vorzi. To what extent is what is happening now, especially with the uh, independence that the brand now mm -hmm. has, mm -hmm. all about you gearing up mm -hmm. to actually not necessarily just increase the production, but push the brand in a direction that you see brands like Richard Mille and others that they've led the way with. To what extent are you now trying to say, wait a minute here, we've got this thing, it is the freak. It is, you know, that's just the name of it. It, say, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Yes. And this is why you should be interested in it. Oh, yeah. I think your question is uh, very interesting because it is related to uh, what is our vision of the future for the industry and what is our product strategy related to Freak and also related to all this world of independent brands that are performing quite well today. And I'm happy to, to be part of that club now. We are independent since a few uh, months now. And uh, I hope, I believe that this independence will also let us continue to build on the particular mindset that you have always found at, uh, at Ulysse Narda. We have never been a marketing brand. And Mr. Rothlinder himself said, you know, Ulysse Narda has never created business-driven products. It, it's not in the DNA of the company. We are a brand of engineers. We like engineering. Historically, all the benefits that made Mr. Schneider and uh, this company have been reinvested inside the uh, the manufacture, the laboratory, the R&D department. And I would like in the future to continue and to perpetuate that. When I ask the people what have been in this industry, I mean, people from outside, the, the, the technological breakthroughs, you know, the, the, the specific moment of rupture, they say, okay, you had with the freak, the rupture on calibers and escapements. And then you have later rupture, for example, through Hublot or brands like that with materials, material combinations, mm -hmm. case constructions, things like that. And I, be I believe that the role of Ulysse Nardin is always to consider that the, okay, design-wise, we try to bring something, we try to uh, be edgy, to be modern. Uh, the Blast, for example, is an example of that type of products, but the most important for us is coming from the inside. Today, we are 90% selling manufacturer movements, 
and our wish is to turn to the 100%. And when I say manufacture of movements, I'm speaking fully integrated uh, movements, including escapements. And uh, we are going to continue to do that in the future. And I believe that Ulysse Nardin should be considered, I mean, the specificity of Ulysse Nardin, if you compare Ulysse Nardin to Erwerk, the Bethune, Brands like that, is that we are a little bit in the mind of the people in between. Hmm. We are an historical maison, but we do not have, let's say, the, we do not display our history like uh, Vacheron Constantin or Patek Philippe or Breguet. We are not ultra niche brand. Uh, we are, let's say, a medium sized brand. We produce on a yearly basis a little bit less than 10,000 calibers. So let's say we are medium size. We are not a big brand and we are competing with very, very big brands with, of course, obviously lower means. So this uh, requires a specific culture, a specific way of doing uh, if you want to, yes, to perpetuate your own tradition. Uh, and my, my personal hope, I, I really believe that Freak doesn't get today 100% of what it deserves. I really believe that this piece should be one of the iconic pieces that any collector should have uh, in his collection. Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting you say, you mentioned Uwerk and the Bethune because we, we've just seen them uh, yesterday, for example. And what makes Uris Nardin special is that if I go to the Bethune or Uwerk and I don't have 50,000 or 80,000 in my, in my bank account to spend on a watch, then I feel like I cannot be part of this brand and this culture. Whereas in Uris Nardin, I go, I buy something with the UN 118 uh, movement yes. in it. And then I'm part of all this innovation, this lithium, all this pioneering yes. spirit. And it's not a freak, but I'm still you know, like less than 10,000 watches. So I feel like if the Debatoons and others of the world, like the, the tiny indies were geared up into a manufacturer, they would be a lot like listener Nardin, like fully vertically integrated. It's not like here we have a 5-axis CNC machine that cuts out bridges and then we put those bridges on top of things that we buy from others and we call it the manufacturing movement. I totally agree. They would be like, how can we throw a bunch of specialized machines to cut pinions and mm. wheels and all this other stuff and make stuff out of silicium that nobody ever heard about and then just make it all into manufacturing and hopefully sell, you know, enough watches to support the whole thing. Whomever who likes watches would not want to be part of that, right? And it's here in front of us and this is why I'm happy the freak still exists because it's like the most spectacular, most blatantly obvious exhibition of everything that Ulysse Nardin is but if you look a little bit deeper then you realize that oh it's actually in a number of other watches that don't cost I don't know 50,000 or 80,000 but cost 20,000 and sure that's a lot but it's still half of what like a Daytona costs on the second hand market these days and the difference is just 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 incredible. So you're clearly excited about the freedom that independence has given you. Is there a particular area, obviously you've noted the freak and how you think it should be a, a watch that every collector should have mm -hmm. that, and I certainly don't disagree with that, but is there a particular area maybe of customer base or supply chain or marketing that you now feel more able to push into because you actually have the freedom to do that? to explore your best ideas, to actually explore the new freak ideas that you have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say that when you want to do something good, you need to do it by passion. And when you are independent, it is, of course, related to figures, but not only. You can express your level of passion, your level of uh, integrity towards your, your, your entrepreneurship culture in your way, even if it is not uh, always, uh, let's say, 
coherent or easy to understand. To come back to what David was saying, for example, let's take the pricing policy of Ulysse Nardin. You mentioned that, I mean, today you can buy a freak for 30K. Uh, we have a Freak X, which is at the entry price of the collection that is dedicated to young watch enthusiasts. We want to speak to this clientele, not only to, let's say, the loyal collectors, you know, who own different Freak generations of Freak. We believe that Freak has a, also a mission to recruit, and we want to do that. It's easier when you are Ulysse Nardin, because there is a freedom that has always been used, as you mentioned, price-wise. We have always used a fair price positioning for our products. You know, the reason why is that the people who are setting the price historically inside the brand, we are the engineers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because we have <laughs> no marketers. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the guys there were saying, you know, this is, this is what I where I believe the price should be because I would like that price to be there. You know, and I can tell you, I joined the company six years ago when you check the logic in the price positionings, it's not always, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not, yes. Um, <laughs> Engineers rarely multiply <laughs> things by two. <laughs> <laughs> they work with like a few person here and there. It's not like, let's make it like twice as large. Yes, yes. It hardly well, ever it, works. It's also what I like with Ulysse Nardin. It's, it's, it's an engineering brand. And I believe, uh, even if I have to say that when we were part of a group, we had a, a high level of independence in terms of possibility to, to design and decide for our product strategy. Honestly, be, I, I really mean what I say. But you can even do more. I mean, I'm sure that if Rolf Schneider have not been an independent owner and CEO, the freak will never appear on the market. Because it has been a very difficult start at the beginning. The, the watches were not waterproof. Uh, the bezel that you used to set the time was turning on itself. So we had to improve it and create new generations with a locker, for example. Yeah. So you have many stories of improvement also, because in 2001, it was not the industry of today. You had many means, many technologies that were not on the tray. So you had to play with what you had at that time. So we had at the, the beginning, I have to say, few quality issues on the Freak. The first generation Freak had the top of the axis, the pinion around which exactly. the whole thing rotated, stick through, literally like go through the sapphire crystal on the front of the watch. Exactly. So you would see a polished end of a freaking, like, like an axle, which is not very refined by today's standards, but that was the only way you could fix it and have the whole thing not fall apart, right? Yes. In fact, you know, you had no design. It was like a concept watch. <laughs> in fact, we have, we have launched and commercialized a concept watch in the market. And this is why also we have been the first in that race, because the decision of the management team at that time has been, OK, we want to win this race and we want to take the risks. And it's also part of the game. <laughs> and this is why I believe that, uh, I mean, to answer your question, I believe that when you are independent, you can take your own risks. And so what risks do we think we're about to see taken next by the brand? Go on, nobody's going to listen to this, so you can tell us secrets. <laughs> and if they are listening, they are not telling anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I will answer, I, I, I will try to be very, very... Vague. No, precise. <laughs> I want to be precise uh, and to make it short also. We have four collections at Ulysse Narda. We have the Marine, which is uh, carrying all the incredible uh, history of uh, navigation instruments. We have the Diver, 
which is a sports technical watch. These are more, let's say, uh, volume-oriented, and uh, what, we, what we want here is, of course, to propose something that is design-wise attractive and, uh, in terms of uh, technical content, reliable and practical, wearable. Then we have two other collections. We have the Blast and we have the Freak. So what we want to do in the future as an independent, on the Blast collection, our vision is to revisit all the traditional know-hows of the company, of watchmaking into contemporary watches. So I'm speaking about, I mean, shining pieces. We have launched the Blast Hour Striker. I'm speaking about astronomic pieces, for example, the Blast Moonstruck. In the future, you could see enamel, micro painting. Uh, we have already done many pieces setted, many pieces skeletonized. So I could mention many types of know-hows, even métier d'art could be possible, but into a very contemporary design. So this is the way we see the thing. And we believe that this is uh, very consistent with what Ulysse Ardin has always been, a brand at the forefront of the industry. And the second axis is through the Freak collection. We call this piece the laboratory on the wrist. I was saying that when you wear a Freak, in a certain manner, you wear a prototype. So we have 5,000 prototypes worn around the world with a, a starting price point of uh, 30K some prices coming uh, very high because we had some very specific requests also uh, with a very strong technical content with prices that are really uh, touching the sky. So we are going to continue to display technical breakthroughs through the Freak collection inside the future. We have two areas where we want to play particularly. The area of the silicium, as you understood, and there is another area which is coming very strong, which is the blades. So the blade flexible, the, the notion of flexibility, for example, if you take the last concept watch that we have presented inside the Freak collection, it is called Freak Next. It is an incredible oscillator made of 32 blades in silicium on three layers with no axis, something that is constantly moving at a 12 Hertz frequency. And today we reach 72 hours power reserve with this 12 Hertz frequency. We would like to work on it, try to improve that in order to increase the power reserve. It's, it is the kind of battlefield where we like to play. It's very difficult, very technical, it takes time. But uh, I'm sure you will see something interesting in the future in the free collection. You hinted there that perhaps some of your customers are also challenging you directly to do things at the real high end with specific requests or specific developments. Can you speak into any of that in terms of the, I feel like the freaky requests you get to be done to the freak? Yes, we have some people who are repeated buyers on the freak collection and even few of them, they want something that is unique. It can be design wise but it can be also technically wise. What we try to do, but we do not communicate really on that, is that when we introduce a concept watch, it may happen that we do something for this type of customers, something unique. Normally a concept watch, and when we define a concept watch, it's never thinking about business. It's, uh, it's really thinking about a window that will display our know-how and our uh, risk-taking ability. But then, I mean, it's, and it's always the difficulty, huh, is that when you are at the forefront, what you propose is opening new doors, but is also uh, carrying some risks. Uh, some people, they want, to, they want that because they understand, they understand that. You know what I mean? Some innovations that have been presented inside the Freak, when you look at the innovation itself, you do not understand really the purpose when you see the innovation. Then you need several years to understand wh exactly what it brought. For example, I'm going to take an example. 
uh, we have presented in uh, 2017 the grinder inside a concept watch called InnoVision 2, and then we have used the grinder into the Freak Vision. The principle of the grinder is it's based on the blades technology, is that it's twice more efficient than any traditional oscillating weight. It's a patented uh, innovation. But at the end, uh, you could argue, uh, who cares? I mean, a traditional winding system, it's, uh, it's winding very well. Huh? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you don't need to, to do more. Yeah. At the last SIHH, uh, Watch and Wonder, sorry, we have presented the Freak S with two oscillators, architectured with a 20 degree angles, with a vertical differential, very complex, inspired by the, watch, the um, automotive industry, 69 components, including uh, 20 ball bearings for this module only. So you can imagine the level of technicity for the miniaturization of the concept. This watch, it will not be possible to make it automatic if the grinder will not have been invented and patented four years before. And when, when we have created the grinder, we did not knew that we would do the freak S. You know what I mean? So that's the idea. And you have many uh, collectors that are, let's say, uh, they give tribute, they value this effort, in fact. It's like when you are in the middle of the ocean and you discover, you know what I mean? You don't know where you go, but uh, you go somewhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So just to bring it full circle when you're touching on innovation there, going right back to the beginning when you were talking about patents, is there things that within the engineering you're inventing that you're like, mm, we really should patent this, but if we patent it, opposition are going to find out about it so actually we keep it all to ourselves to explode out mm -hmm. in the way that the freak did originally is is there a skunk works in the background where somebody's working on whatever comes after the freak yes yes because it's a it is a it is always a decision to take uh, do you want to attract the attention or not on something and uh, and anyway i mean we we are i mean for our size we own a lot of patent. Yeah. Uh, but if you compare with big players, I mean, we, we, we cannot compete. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean they have uh, dozens of lawyers and, you know, intellectual property consultors and engineers in patents working for them. They have budgets with no limits. Yeah. It's not our case. Well, I'm very glad that you continue to be a company that is dominated and run by engineers yes. and not lawyers. <laughs> so thank you very much for your time. It has been wonderful getting a retrospective on the history of the freak. David, any concluding words from yourself? Sell your kidney or your firstborn child and just get a freak. Do we one of those for 5,000? That's my only advice. Yeah, it is a rather intriguing number. Isn't it? It's been, yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yep. It's time to go and break the break the bad news to my only child. <laughs> yeah. Look, darling, there's this great escrow service on Chrono24. I have to like <laughs> ship you off and they send me a watch. It's going to be fine. <laughs> great stuff. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And thank yeah, you. all the best, all the best in the launch. And we look forward to what comes next uh, from the brand. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Cheers, Eddie. everyone. Well, everybody, thank you for joining us on this special edition with Uli Snardan. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can tune into all things a blog to watch weekly, every week, normally a Thursday. Check us out on your podcaster of choice and do be sure to check out both ablogtowatch.com and to search for all things Uli Snardan and check out The Freak for yourself. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. <laughs>